Let's now look to the one who not only hears us, but also speaks to us and strengthens us through his word. So please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we will look at verses 9 to 13. Listen carefully now to the Word of God. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we look to his word. Father, we ask that you would now help us to not only see the glory of your wisdom in your word, but to also see everything through the lens of your word. Help us put on the mind of Christ so that our judgments may be holy and loving and true. Lord, we pray that what Paul asks of the Corinthians may be true of us, that we would be united in the same mind and same judgment, for we know and believe and confess that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And we have been made alive in Him, alive in Him to delight in all that is holy. Teach us now what it means to be your people in a world that is perishing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Cultural thinking can give you ear problems. Did you know that? Cultural thinking leads to deafness. It makes you deaf to the demands of the cross and therefore deaf to the demands of Scripture. It is a deadly disease of the soul that promotes an appearance of godliness but denies its power. When Paul went to Corinth, he did not preach the gospel with lofty speech or wisdom, those things that were culturally impressive to the Corinthians, but he decided to preach and to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when he did that, their eyes were opened and they saw the beauty and the wisdom and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now when you read the letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells us why cultural wisdom, which is nothing but 
worldly wisdom. He tells us why cultural wisdom cannot save us, nor can it grow us in holiness. And this is because the wisdom of this world is folly with God. We see that in 1 Corinthians 3.19. The power to save and to sanctify a believer lies in the message of the cross, a message that the world finds foolish and unimpressive. And therefore, any attempt to preach or to hold on to the gospel while simultaneously holding on to cultural wisdom will empty the cross of its sanctifying power. And without the sanctifying power of God, there can be no holiness in a congregation. Now, at Corinth, there were some who were very proud of their worldly thinking. And as a result of that, they began to tolerate sin. When Paul heard that, when he heard that there was unrepentant sexual sin in the congregation, he wrote to them and he told them that such tolerance was incompatible with what it meant to be a Christian church. God's blood-bought people are saints. They are the holy ones. They are made holy because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And therefore, God's saints are to live in keeping with their new identities. Those who are daily trusting in the word of the cross, that is the gospel, they will be humbled by their sin. They will mourn over their sin and they will cling to the cross more dearly. And friends, those who cling to the cross dearly will submit to God's word in the obedience of faith. But instead of doing this, instead of mourning over their sin and celebrating holiness, the Corinthians were tolerating sin and resisting holiness. And so Paul speaks wisdom into this situation by telling them to remove the unrepentant man from their midst, from their membership as an act of church discipline. You see him making this judgment known in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 4 to 5. This is what he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose of, of church discipline in the pursuit of holiness is not to punish but to restore. It is redemptive. It is a solemn and painful command that the church carries out in humility because of love for the unrepentant sinner. When a Christian or a congregation trusts in the wisdom of God's Word, God acts in power through His Spirit, and He applies the redemptive work of Jesus to their hearts. Friends, this is the foundation for all our sanctification, for all our growth in holiness. It is by faith in Christ alone. But growing in holiness also requires discernment. It requires you and I to make spiritual judgments. The Corinthians were using cultural standards to make their judgments, and this led to unholiness. And so Paul here teaches them that the celebration of holiness in the life of a congregation requires them 
to be spiritually discerning. And that means we must look to God's Word. We must understand the mind of Christ revealed to us in the Word. We must trust what it says. We must obey it. And then we must use it as our standard to righteously and lovingly judge not just our lives, but the lives of our members, the lives of fellow believers in the church. And so in this passage, as Paul continues to to urge them to discipline the unrepentant man, he, he tells us two things. Number one, the church is not called to judge the people of this world. I'll say that again. The church in this age is not called to judge the people of the world. However, here's our second point, the church is called to judge its members, to judge its members. So look with me at verse 9. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now when Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, he's talking about an earlier letter. It's a letter that we do not have. It's a letter that God did not intend for us to have. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. Let's just call it Corinthians A. And then the Corinthians wrote back to him. We know this because of chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So this letter, 1 Corinthians, is a response letter to the church's letter, as well as Paul's response to what he had heard, to some of the reports that he had heard. Now, in Corinthians A, Paul had already warned them not to keep company with sexually immoral people, but that warning had fallen on deaf ears. And so, in this text, we, we get a sense of why they did that. Some people thought that Paul meant avoid all sexually immoral unbelievers. Look at the text again. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Now, you have to understand Paul's words in light of the context. Remember what was going on. There was boasting and there was tolerance of sin. They were tolerating a member who was in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. This was ongoing, unrepentant sin. It was the kind of sin that not even the pagans would tolerate. Not even unbelievers in Corinthian culture would tolerate that. This was scandalous even among non-Christians. And Paul tells them to remove this man from their membership. And as he does this, he addresses some of their objections. So someone was saying, look, Paul says, have nothing to do with someone who sins like this. Paul is saying, don't mingle with people like this. I mean, be reasonable, Paul. I mean, we go to work with people like this. The guy who I share my desk with at the office is probably sleeping with his girlfriend. My boss steals from the company. I buy potatoes from people like this. They are everywhere. This is an unreasonable request. 
But Paul says, I'm not talking about the sexually immoral of this world. You know, this objection, this was probably the talk of some of those arrogant leaders that Paul mentions in chapter 4, verse 18. And he says, I'm not at all referring to the sexually immoral of this world. Now, when Paul says that, he has a clear distinction in his mind between people in the church and people in the world. And he gives us a sampling of such people. He talks about the greedy, those who are given to covetous desires. Swindlers are people who steal from you, people who will take you for a ride for their own pleasure and gain. This is where greed will take you. And he speaks of idolaters, those who worship false gods. And the reason Paul mentions these sins is they were probably rampant in Corinthian culture, and they were probably showing up in the church. And so Paul makes it clear that his instructions were not to avoid unbelievers. The only way to do that would be to withdraw from the world or to die. Look at the next verse. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Now, when we read the rest of the Bible, we know that this is not what Christians are called to do. Jesus has given us a command to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. He has called us to rub shoulders with all kinds of sinners for the sake of preaching the gospel. Jesus himself was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see that in Luke 7.34. He regularly hung out with perverse people and social outcasts, not to become like them or to condone their sin, but to bring them to faith in Himself. He had come to seek and save that which was lost. And friends, this is why He sends His church into the world. He sends us as sheep in the midst of wolves. So is that how you think of your calling? Are you like Jesus? Or do you choose to avoid sinners because of their lifestyles? Are you like Jesus? Or are you like the Pharisees who did stay away from immoral people? Are you filled with self-righteousness like the Pharisees? Or are you humbled by saving grace and you long to see others receive what you have received? You know, Thomas Manton once wrote that a man who is satisfied with his own righteousness does not prize his Savior. Do you have a compassion for the lost? If not for the grace of God that came to you and I in the gospel, we too would be lost. Jesus prayed to the Father for His church like this. John 17, verses 15 to 18. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Paul doesn't want us to be antisocial. He doesn't want us to go join a monastery or a convent. But he also doesn't want the church to discipline unrepentant non-Christians. No, he wants us to discipline unrepentant people in the church. 
He's calling us to judge people who call themselves and identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And that brings us to our second point, and this is where we'll spend most of our time. The church in this age is called to judge its members. Look at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Friends, the word brother here refers to professing believers. It refers to Christians, those who have been saved by, by grace through faith in Christ and are not only united to Jesus, but are united to one another in the body of Christ. We are now members of the household of God. So God, the holy judge of all the earth, who once stood over us in wrath because of our sin, is now our Father. The cross has changed our identity. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have now been reconciled to God. A great exchange took place on that cross. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God in the flesh, took our sins upon Himself and He died in our place so that we could receive His righteousness as a, as a gift of grace through faith. This is the good news that Jesus has called us to share with the world that lies under God's judgment. So if you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian, you know, perhaps you, you might have heard us doing this, referring to one another as brother or sister. You should know that we did not always refer to one another in this way. There was a time when we did not use these terms. But when we heard the gospel, that is the message of Christ and Him crucified, God opened our eyes through the power of the Spirit. He opened our eyes so that we could see our sin and see our offense against God. This is what the message of the cross does. Through this message, God saved us. He saved us and He united us to Himself by His Spirit. You see, to be called a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ is to make a statement first and foremost about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It is to say that Christ has forgiven me of my sins. He has set me free from, the, from sin's power through the Holy Spirit. That same Spirit who raised Him from the dead has done this. Just as the Passover lamb in the Old Testament was sacrificed to save a people from God's wrath and redeem them, Jesus' sacrifice, His blood, saves us from God's wrath so that we might be forgiven of our sins and set free from our slavery to sin. This is what the Passover lamb in the Old Testament pointed forward to. It pointed forward to the Lamb of God. It pointed to Christ. And this means that as Christians, we not only have a new relationship with God, we also have a new relationship with our sin. In Christ, we no longer love our sin, but hate it. And we want to overcome our sin, turn away from it, and we want to please God. We want to please our Savior. This means that Christians must repent of their sin because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who enables us to do that. He enables us to turn away from our sin, to turn to Christ, 
to the one who cleanses us from all sin. So it's not the non-Christians that Paul wants the Corinthians to do something about. He wants them to do something about the one who calls himself a brother. He's talking about a member at the church of Corinth. And he says, do not associate with a brother on this condition. Look at verse 11. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. If a brother is guilty of sin, don't associate with him. Now keep in mind that Paul is not talking about someone who stumbled into sin. He's not talking about someone who got drunk once. No, he's talking about someone who's mem- who is a member whose life is characterized by these sins. You see, Scripture is clear that everyone sins. Everyone sins. But Scripture is also clear how we must help one another overcome sin. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is a so-called brother, but his life is characterized by sexual immorality. If you have someone in your church who is like this, who is covetous, he steals, he's a swindler, he is an idolater. At Corinth, these may have been actual idols in pagan temples. Or you have a so-called brother who's given to drunkenness, showing a lack of self-control. He's a reviler, which means he slanders people. He's not interested in promoting the truth. That's who Paul is talking about. That's what he means when he says if he's guilty of sin. Now, if you look at these sins closely, you will notice that they're all violations of the Ten Commandments. Paul has the Old Testament law in mind. After all, he's just spoken about the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And when you get to verse 13, he quotes a passage from the book of Deuteronomy, possibly Deuteronomy 17, verse 7. This is when Moses reiterates the law to Israel on the plains of Moab. And so when you look at these, the, this list of sins, it gives you a little insight into what kind of sins the church ought to discipline. And while this is certainly not an exhaustive list, we can see that they are visible. They're unrepentant. They're significant. Even the greed that is listed here is listed because it leads to swindling. Now, friends, under the new covenant, we must see these sins as a failure to love. You see, Christ has fulfilled the law, and Christians are under the law of Christ, the law of love. And Christian love, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. That should tell you that it is a holy love. It is profoundly moral. And hence, we are told in the New Testament that love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. 
When you look at each of these infractions, they are profoundly unloving towards God and towards other Christians. Anyone who is changed by the love of Jesus cannot continue in these sins. 1 John 3, 9 is clear about this. Listen to John. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, no one who says he's a brother can continue sinning. Such a one falsely represents the work of Christ. And so Paul says, don't associate with such a person. This word associate implies a meaningful relationship, a, a partnership of sorts, or you could say a fellowship. This is the sort of thing that Paul has in mind when he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? How can one associate or have fellowship with someone who says they are in Christ, who says they live under His saving rule, but know nothing of His power to change? Instead, they live as though they are still enslaved to their sinful natures. Friends, that is not someone that the church can put their stamp of approval on and say to the world, He's one of us. He's a brother. Paul says you cannot say that. Such an association, such a fellowship confuses the church's holy witness to the world. You know, today an, empl an employee can be dismissed or fired because he no longer represents the best interests of the company. Have you heard that as a reason for being fired? Just pick up any local newspaper and you will see almost every day, you will see an ad with someone's picture and it'll say, so-and-so person is no longer associated with our organization and is not authorized to represent us. Have you seen that? Friends, surely the church's standards ought to be higher as we guard the gospel. Scripture tells us that the church is to be a display of God's wisdom and His holiness and His love. Jesus says, by this the world will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another, and I take it that means holy love. The world is given a confusing message when the church looks just like the world, unloving and unholy. And so, beloved, it's important for you to know this. It's not enough to say you're a Christian. No, you need the judgments of other Christians who can assess your life and affirm your testimony. Why? Because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Are you leading changed lives? True Christians have the indwelling presence 
of God's Spirit to repent of their sins. This is why we have an article in our statement of faith on repentance, because we want to make it clear that this is what we believe. Repentance is a gospel grace wherein a person who has been made alive by the Holy Spirit is deeply convicted of the manifold evil of his sin and its offense against God. One who repents does so with godly sorrow and humbles himself for it with a purpose and endeavor to walk before God so as to please Him in all things. If someone is unrepentant after repeated appeals, Paul says, remove him from membership. Hand him over to Satan, back to the world. And here he says, do not even eat with such a one. Now remember that Paul wants the church to discipline this man when they are assembled in the name of Jesus. And this means at the very least, at the very least, not eating means that this man can no longer participate in the most important meal. And that is the Lord's Supper. That's the most important fellowship meal. He is judged by the church to no longer be a member in good standing. Now, in the first century, if someone was disciplined, if they were excommunicated by the church, there was nowhere else to go. There was one church in town, the church at Corinth. That's it. These days, people simply run away to another church. Now, if that church is healthy and has wise pastors, they ought to ask why someone left one church and came to theirs. But friends, at the very least, a warning should be given. And that is why when we fence the table here at Grace Church, you will hear your pastor say that the Lord's table is a fellowship meal for believers. This means you are welcome to partake of the Lord's table if you are a baptized member of an evangelical church in good standing. That includes the members of this church and the members of other churches where the same gospel you heard here is preached. If you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, you're welcome to take it here. This is a meal for sinners who are saved by grace, who are trusting in Christ's righteousness and repenting. So if you are holding on to any sin for which you refuse to repent, please do not partake of the bread and cup. Be reconciled first with God through Christ. Be reconciled with one another and then look forward to the Lord's Supper when it is observed next. Why do we do this? We do this to safeguard the name of Christ and the purity of of his church. But friends, this command to not even eat with such a one means more than that. I think it also means that we must abstain from other meals whenever the church gathers for fellowship. So anything that would communicate that everything's okay with this person and would send a message that all is well. Paul says avoid that. 
When false teachers joined in with the church to share their meals, Jude, Jude called these men a stain on their love feasts. He said they were sharing meals without fear. Beloved, sharing a meal with someone is an intimate moment. At the first century, it signified a unity in beliefs, a sense of community identity. And Paul says, don't give that impression that he is part of your community. Do not even eat with such a one. We cannot relate with him as we did before. It cannot be business as usual with someone, with that person. You see, meals signify fellowship, which is why, if you think about it, this is why it was such a big issue for Paul when Peter stopped eating with the Galatian Christians out of fear for the circumcision party. Do you remember that? When you withdraw from table fellowship, what does it say about the identity of these Galatian Christians? But here's the reason why Paul wants the church to follow through with his judgment, why it was necessary for the church to discipline this unrepentant man. Look at the text, verse 12 to 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That phrase, purge the evil person from among you, appears, if I'm not mistaken, at least nine times in the book of Deuteronomy. And it appears as a statement of judgment on someone who has violated the covenant. So in that passage that was read for us earlier from Deuteronomy 22, the, the, the sentence for sexual immorality under the old covenant, the covenant with Israel, was death. Under the old covenant, as a nation under God, sins were treated as crimes. And every time that phrase, purge the evil from your midst, every time that phrase appears, it is a reference to the death sentence. To the death sentence. And the sins mentioned in Deuteronomy, beginning from 13 all the way to 22, are the sins of idolatry, murder, slander, Bearing false witness, drunkenness and rebellion, sexual immorality, theft, and human trafficking. And Paul takes that phrase, purge the evil from your midst. He takes that phrase and he applies it to church discipline. Something has changed. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. He has inaugurated the new covenant. And that means that under the new covenant, God's people are no longer a nation in a particular location. They're no longer a people marked by circumcision, but they are people who have been made alive and filled with the Spirit. The New Covenant community is the fulfillment of Old Covenant Israel. And so Paul says this to the church, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you, you is in plural, he's referring to the church, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And friends, that is why anyone who insists on continuing in unholiness cannot be allowed to identify themselves with that which is holy. 
keeping the law in mind, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. See, excommunication ought to be seen as a kind of death. Being cut off from the new covenant community, it's a sobering act that ought to drive the sinner to his knees in repentance so that he might be restored to fellowship, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Anyone who does not understand the importance of church discipline fails to understand what holiness is. Beloved, holiness is nothing but Christ-likeness. And while the church is positionally holy in Christ, it becomes progressively holy because of the sanctifying power of His Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus who empowers us to trust and repent and obey. That's not true. That experience is not true of non-Christians. And so Paul says, it's not my business to be judging outsiders. Outsiders are non-Christians. We should not judge them by Christian standards, expecting them to behave like Christians. Outsiders are non-Christians. This is how they are referred to in Scripture. You see that in Colossians 4.5 and 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Insiders are believers, are Christians. And he says, is it not those inside, inside the church, that you, again the you is in plural, that you, the congregation, are to judge? Beloved, I, I hope you see that in Paul's mind there is a clear distinction there's a border between Christians and non-Christians, between those in the world and those in the church, between members of the body of Christ living under His saving rule and those living under the rule of Satan. And that border, that line is what we mean by church membership. When you have outsiders and insiders, you not only have a distinct border between the local church and the world, but you also have an identifiable group of people from which you can exclude someone through church discipline. Now, what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? You remember verse 20, the kingdom of God is in Paul's mind. What does it have to do with all of it? Everything. Everything. Listen to how Jesus makes the distinction. Mark chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. Jesus says to His disciples, listen carefully, to you, that's His disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, do you hear that distinction? But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In other words, the disciples are given eyes to see, but those outside won't. They will be judged. But you have to ask, well, outside what? Outside the kingdom. Friends, do you see that the local church 
is a small representation of that kingdom. We are citizens who live under the saving rule of King Jesus. There are insiders and outsiders, and it has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with the grace of God who opened our eyes and brought us in. And the church is called to live in such a way that corresponds to that kingdom. So I hope you can see that the idea of membership is not something that that pastors cooked up. It's implicitly taught in the Scriptures. Now, we have 53 members, 53 people in membership at Grace Church. We know their names. We know their lives. And they have committed themselves in love to this congregation. These members submit themselves to the oversight of the elders and this congregation. So if you're a visitor and you think you're a Christian, well, let me encourage you to join the church. The Christian's life is cross-shaped and congregational. Christ has saved you and He has joined you to His body. So live out that spiritual truth by actually committing to a local body of believers for the sake of your sanctification and joy. Friends, it is within a congregation that Christ commands you to assess and judge one another for the sake of your own spiritual well-being. This is His design. This is how He sustains His people. Now, when Paul says he won't judge outsiders, he's not saying that we should not assess or evaluate the lives of unbelievers using Scripture. No, Scripture should always be our standard when we look at an unbeliever's life. If that unbeliever's life is sinful, then we ought to look at Scripture, see it through the lens of Scripture, and call it evil. So, Remember what 1 Corinthians 2 verse 15 says. The spiritual person judges all things. If you have the Spirit who helps you understand God's wisdom in His Word, then you not only have the ability to judge, but you must judge. You must regularly judge and assess everything in your life and in your church and in the world around you. You must view reality with gospel lenses. No, what Paul means by the statement that he won't judge outsiders is that he won't judge with a view to discipline anyone. Friends, we have no business disciplining unbelievers. But both kinds of judgment, one where we evaluate our lives by Scripture and one where we discipline unrepentant sin, that sort of thing ought to happen regularly among members. Unbelievers will have to deal with God himself. God judges those outside. And that, beloved, is a frightening reality. That should make us more passionate and committed to evangelism. Now, perhaps some of you are reading this text for the first time, and you are shocked to see that God calls you, as a member of this congregation, to judge the life of another believer. You may even be required to act along with the congregation, to excommunicate someone from the fellowship of the local church. And you hear that and you think, this makes me nervous. Well, maybe that's because you had 
some well-meaning Christian come and tell you. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Well, let's look at that interpretation, shall we? Turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. And we'll also look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And as a setup to what he will say in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So motives matter. We've seen that in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. On the day of the Lord, he will judge our motives. Now turn to Matthew 7 and we'll look at verses 1 to 6. This is what Jesus says. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, if you stop there, it does seem like Jesus is saying you should never judge anyone, doesn't it? If that's the case, then 1 Corinthians 5.12, which says we must judge believers, well, that would seem to be a contradiction. But thankfully, that's not all that Jesus says. Look at the text. What does he mean when he says, judge not that you be not judged? For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Jesus says, the standard by which you judge your brother is the same standard by which you will be judged. And then he says this, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, when he says judge not, he means do not judge hypocritically. Beloved, if you're watching porn, you have no business going up to the guy who is cheating on his wife and telling him, well, brother, your life is in a mess. You need to stop. No, you must deal with your own sin first. You must judge yourself first. And then, when you can see clearly, you will be in a better position to evaluate and judge and help your brother. By the way, if he means don't judge at all, then the next verse makes absolutely no sense. Look at what the next verse says. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So there must be some way to judge, to know who is a dog and who is a pig, before you decide what to give or throw to them. So he's not saying that Christians should not judge. He's saying judge righteously, judge without hypocrisy. Paul says, when you judge, here are the standards. Don't go beyond what is written, 1 Corinthians 3.6. Don't judge by the faithless morality of your culture. Judge instead with the spectacles of scripture. Now, we're certainly not to judge as to condemn people. That's not our job. When we remove people from membership, the church is not saying that this person is going to hell. No, our prayer is that he or she will repent. That's the point of church discipline. What we're saying is that given the way that this person is behaving, we can no longer affirm with confidence that this person is a believer. And so we treat him like an unbeliever. The key word there being treat. If he repents and bear the fruit, bears the fruit of repentance, <clears throat> then we affirm the work of the Spirit in his life, and once again, 
bring him into membership. We treat him like an insider. Beloved, if you're still hesitating to use scripture to evaluate your life and the lives of other members that you have committed to in love, you should know that that is exactly the kind of pride that Paul is addressing in this text. So submit to scripture and don't listen to your feelings. Now, if you are here listening to this sermon and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, what does this mean for you? Well, it means that you need to call on Jesus, cry out to him for mercy so that you can enter the kingdom. Cry out to Jesus for mercy. Ask him to forgive your sins and put your trust in him. Outside the kingdom, there is no forgiveness and no eternal life. The only way to enter the kingdom, to be an insider, is to lay down your rebellion and put your trust in the king. So turn to Christ. If you're hearing this as a believer and you desire to be faithful to the wisdom of God in this text, and if you're wondering, well, how do I learn to judge or assess like this? Well, let me suggest three things you can do. Number one, no scripture. No scripture. And when I say no scripture, I don't just mean read scripture. I mean study it. Devour it. Find out what the text is saying in context. Find out what it meant to its original hearers and then apply its truths to yourself. If you don't know what God says, if you don't know what the mind of Christ is, well, how will you ever assess and judge yourself and others righteously? How will you ever judge without hypocrisy? So, so no scripture, study it. And don't just stop there. Ask yourself, am I applying the truths of scripture rightly? Brothers, remember that you are not called to grow in discernment alone. This is the task of the entire congregation. Is it not those inside the church whom you, plural, all of you, are to judge? So when you read and apply texts, have a prayerful discussion about it. You know, prior to the invention of the printing press in the 1400s, the normal way to study scripture was in community. Not everyone had their own personal Bible. And so, very practically, make it a habit every week to get together with another member and study scripture together. God has gifted different members differently, and you need their help even to understand scripture. Study scripture together. Um, also, make it a practice to read good books on how to interpret and apply the Bible. So, let me suggest that you grab a copy of Grasping God's Word by Duall and Hayes and get together with another member and work through that book. Study how to interpret and apply scripture. Now, if you're thinking, well, that sounds hard. I, I, I need someone to hold my hand and take me through this. How do I approach this step by step? Well, let me, tell, let me suggest that you attend Monday Night Bible Study. Monday night Bible study. Come and learn how to interpret scripture. Watch and learn. Come and see how I do it. Imitate my approach to Bible study. Number two, study the doctrine of conversion. Friend, you need to understand the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. This is so crucial. You must understand the difference between the behavior of a Christian and the behavior of a non-Christian. Know what scripture says about this. Number three, Discern between cultural morality and the obedience of faith. This is important in order to know what kind of behavior glorifies God. For example, 
if it's normal in your culture, this is what I mean by cultural morality, if it's normal in your culture for women to submit to their husbands, and you're doing it because it seems natural to you, you should know that that does not please God. If you're able to do that without dependence upon the cross of Christ, then it's not going to please God. That is cultural morality, and it is sinful. Romans 14 verse 23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That is not the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith requires you to first ask yourself, Well, why do I do this? Why am I supposed to keep this commandment? What, what, what is the point? How do I do this? When you read Ephesians 5, 24, you see that wives should also submit to their husbands in everything. Look at that command, and first, you need to recognize that you can't do that in your own strength. You cannot do that without the help of the Spirit. So honestly search your heart and recognize everything in you that hates that command, and take it to Christ and ask Him, for forgiveness. Ask him for cleansing. Ask him for his enabling power. Now you're trusting in the power of the cross. And when you submit to your husband out of love for Christ, not because it's culturally or socially acceptable or you're, or you're doing it out of fear or pragmatism, but out of love for Christ in response to his word. If you do that, then you're walking in the obedience of faith. Now you are worshiping God and God is glorified because your good work of submission was dependent on the work of his son and you have no reason to boast in your behavior. So judge behavior like a Christian. Brothers, another thing that you should watch out for is unbelief. Watch out for unbelief and sluggish repentance. If you're slow to repent, it could be that you are thinking culturally about your sin. You might be normalizing or even justifying your sin. Unrepentance is deadly, and cultural wisdom is powerless to produce repentance. The unrepentant sinner is referred to as the evil person in this passage. If you're harboring unrepentant sin, know that it is evil, and it can lead you to fall away from Christ. So, beloved, see your sin in light of the cross and judge well, and call on Christ. He is mighty to save and sanctify. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us grow in our understanding of the great evil of our sin, and help us see that there is nothing in us that has the power to purify our hearts. Lord, help us to cling to the cross alone. Help us look to you for grace we know that plentiful grace is found in Christ our Lord. Cleanse your people, O Lord. Cleanse us by your saving love that we might glorify you and boast in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.